This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, we continue our summer series in this letter from Paul, written from prison to this dear church whom he loves. It's been such a joy for me to be with you this summer, uh, and you all have been so hospitable to myself and my family. My, uh, my three-year-old tells me that the toys in this nursery are much better than the toys in ours, so it's worth something at least. Uh, really have enjoyed being with you all, uh, such a, a dear body of Christ here at, here at Woodland. Uh, last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 3. And Paul showed us the futility of living in such a way that we define who we are by what we do in this life. And he showed us the way to true joy is to relinquish all that we stand to gain by our own efforts and to receive the righteousness freely given to us in Jesus. A whole new identity, a whole new way of being by being united to Jesus. It's the way to true joy, he says. But there's much in this life that threatens to take away that joy, isn't there? If it's not our circumstances or different things we deal with, it's our own consciences, it's our own thoughts. So how do we, how do we continue to live into that joy, live out of that joy that defines who we are now? That's where Paul goes next in this letter. Pick it up at verse 12, chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to come and be among us this morning. We need you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we might understand your word, so that we might see Jesus clearly, and so that we might live in response to belonging to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I briefly recounted to you the story of Harold Abrams, that sprinter for Great Britain who took gold in the 1924 Olympics. Remember we said that he was so consumed with defining who he was by his running 
He called the 100 meter dash 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. You know, the man who was widely favored to win that race, you've probably heard, was Eric Little. But Little decided to withdraw from the race because the qualifying heats were held on Sunday, and he was con convinced that he, he should not run on the Sabbath. You may know, and Eric Metaxas talks about this more in his book on Little, but you may know that he actually went and entered the 400 meter in those same Olympics, a race that he had not, uh, not trained for. He was a sprinter, a 100 meter dash guy, and he, he entered the 400 meter. He barely slipped into the, the, final, the final race, but in the qualifying heats, he was beaten by more than a full second by the man favored to win. And worse than that, when they drew their, their lane assignments, he was on the very outside lane, which is widely considered the worst one because you have to look back in order to see where you are in relation to the other runners. All the odds were stacked against Little as he went to run this 400-meter dash. But two things happened in the lead-up to that race. One, a friend of Little's wrote him a, a note, and he gave it to him before he went down to the track. And as he was warming up, as he was getting set in the blocks, he opened it up and he read these words. It says in the good book, him that honors me, I will honor. The second thing that happened was a friend arranged for the bagpipes there to play Scotland the Brave. Little was a Scottish man. He was, he was uh, nicknamed the Flying Scotsman. And so, as Metaxas relates, that song, especially on the bagpipes, would have stirred the heart of any Scotman about to run a race. Those two things did something for Little. They reminded him of who he was. When the gun went off, he took out out of the blocks. In fact, many thought that he took off too fast. And the 100 meter, you, you run with reckless abandon. But the 400 meter, pacing is key. And Little was running this race as if he was running the 100 meter. They thought for sure he'll fade in the second half and he won't win. But then something incredible happened. In the last yards of the race, Little didn't fall behind. He actually increased his lead. And as he neared the finish line, he went into that form that he was so known for, throwing his head back, flailing his arms, running with all he had, straining towards the goal to win the prize. And he took the gold. He took the gold medal. What was it that enabled Eric Little to stand firm with such conviction that he would give up almost a sure gold medal in the 100 meter because of his conviction not to run on the Sabbath and also to run with such, with such reckless abandon to run to win the prize? He said it best in his own words. I believe God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. Little wasn't running to create an identity for himself. He was running out of the joy he already had. That's what defined Little. That's what enabled him after his Olympic career to go on to missionary work into China and to give his life away until he died at the young age of 43, constantly giving himself away to others. That's what enabled him to, to press on, to strain toward the goal because he knew that he belonged to Jesus Christ, body and soul. Paul says a similar thing in our passage today. 
Not that I've obtained all this, but I press on to make it my own. I press on to win the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It shows us, brothers and sisters, that if we want to continue to live with true joy in this life, although everything would threaten to take it from us, we must press on. We must live like we belong to Jesus. Two very practical things that Paul gives us to do in this passage. We find them in verse 16 and verse 1 of chapter 4. First, he says to hold true. Hold true to who you are in Christ. And secondly, he says to stand firm. Hold true when your conscience assails you and tries to tell you that you don't belong to Jesus. And stand firm when everything in this world tempts you to quit the race, to stop striving, to stop pressing forward. Because we belong to Jesus, we must live like it. How do we hold true? How do we hold true to who we are in Jesus Christ? Paul says the first thing that we must do is simply to admit that we're not perfect. Admit we're not perfect. Not that I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but I press on. It's encouraging to us that an apostle of the church and an author of much of Scripture could admit this, isn't it? And, you know, I think deep down all of us, all of us desire this. All of us desire to be able to, to let our guard down and be who we truly are. In fact, uh, many psychologists and other thinkers have have identified this phenomenon that happens that as we achieve higher, as we we gain accolades and awards, we begin to feel more like a fraud. If these people really knew who I was, they'd know that I wasn't quite so competent. We're we're keeping up a, a facade. I thought that was just what being a pastor was called, but apparently there's a term for it. It's called the imposter syndrome. It's this underlying feeling that I'm not enough, I don't measure up. But the gospel, when we belong to Jesus, is the only thing in life that enables us to admit that we don't. We can let down the facade. We can admit that we're not perfect because we belong to Jesus. You know, Paul, he, he faced this a lot in his ministry. He had these false apostles who were constantly saying, he's not a true apostle. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's weak in his speech. He writes strong letters, but when you meet him in person, he's not much. He's ugly. All these accusations they hurled at Paul. And you know how he responded to those? He said, you don't know the half of it. He said, I'm the worst of all the apostles, less than the least of all the apostles, and the greatest sinner that there is. And yet when I'm weak, when I admit that I'm imperfect, then, then I'm strong because I'm found in Jesus Christ. You want to be who you truly are. You want to let down the guard and stop pretending Hold true to who you are by admitting you're imperfect and realizing that Jesus has accepted you anyway. He makes you his. Another very closely related aspect of that, Paul says, is to forget what lies behind. Not that I've already obtained this, but I, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the goal. I strain forward with all that I have. Paul certainly had much in his past that he wanted to put behind him, didn't he? One pastor points out that uh, he, he told us in the previous verses to as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Remember, we read in Acts that um, when Stephen was being stoned, martyred, Paul, then Saul, was standing by giving his approval. If anybody knew what it was like to have a past that haunted them, the screams of, of martyrs of God's church 
as they died, it was certainly the Apostle Paul. What might it be for you? What's the, what's the sin from your past that Satan always brings back to your conscience to make you feel shame, make you feel like you, you don't belong to Jesus? What are the things that you've done that, that you regret, that you wish with everything that you have you could take back and change how that went? What are the things that you wish you would have done or wish you would have done differently? The relationships severed, the broken past. What are those things for you that constantly assail your conscience, trying to, to tell you that you don't belong to Jesus Christ? And how, how can we press on with joy? With, each of us has a past. How can we press on with joy with all those sinful things in our past hanging on us? It's kind of like this. I've been doing some uh, premarital counseling recently. I talk about feeling like a fraud. And, um, you know, over and above anything else I want these couples to understand is this, that the marriage relationship is based not on a feeling, but on a covenant, right? It's not based on a feeling, it's based on a covenant. You know, most marriages go south when, you know, in the courtship and engagement in the first year of marriage, everything's great, your, your spouse is perfect, you know, how could I have ever lived without this person? And then what happens? Well, you begin to, to see their flaws, right? You see them at, at six in the morning when they're, when they're not happy to be awake, all those different things. And they don't make us feel the way that we used to feel when we were around them. And so the marriage deteriorates because of that. But what those couples don't understand when that happens is that it's when your spouse sees you at your worst and accepts you and loves you anyway that the love deepens and grows. That's how a marriage lasts. Tim Keller puts it helpfully in his book on marriage. He says this, What you think of as being head over heels in love is in large part a gust of ego gratification, but it's nothing like the profound satisfaction of being known and loved. When, over the years, someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything it liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. You know, marriage is just a picture of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Jesus has married you to himself. He says, you are mine. You belong to me. With all your past, with all your imperfections, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And isn't it the truth, brothers and sisters, that it's those people in our lives that have seen us at our worst and loved us anyway that we would do almost anything for? And that's how the relationship of joy in the Lord Jesus Christ works. He accepts us at our worst. And so the only conceivable response from us is to press on, to strain with all we have, to glorify Him with our lives. We can forget what's in our past because Jesus has forgotten it and He's accepted us Anyway, we can press on. And even more than that, in His grace, He's not only enabled us to admit that we're imperfect, to forget our past, He's given us His Spirit 
to remind us of these things, to remind us that we belong to him. Paul goes next. He says, uh, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think differently, God will reveal that to you. Well, he reveals that through his spirit. Jesus said when he ascended back to the Father, I leave my spirit with you to lead you into all truth, to remind you of the things that I taught you while I was with you, with you here on earth. And the way that the spirit works, ordinarily, he can work in any way he chooses, but ordinarily is through those common means of grace, through the word and the sacraments. And so it's incumbent on us to come again and again, week after week, to receive the grace and the gospel and be reminded who we are. We often get it reversed, don't we? We, we think that because we came to church, because we have good attendance in those programs, because we read our Bible, that God loves us more. But no, it's when we come to church, when we read our Bible, that we're reminded of who we are, that He already does love us, despite anything that we have done. If you think about it, if you spend your entire week um, browsing social media and looking at the, the carefully curated lives and experiences of other people, you'll begin to feel and believe that you don't measure up. I don't have what it takes. I can't live the way these people are living. But when you come to corporate worship every week and you confess your sins, you confess that you are, in fact, not enough and receive the assurance of pardon right on the heels of that, that God loves you anyway, then that's true joy. That's living comfortably in your own skin. I'm accepted for who I am, even though I feel like I don't measure up. If you go through your entire week seeing all the, the evil and injustice and divisiveness on the news, you'll begin to believe that evil has in fact won, and so we'll shrink back and keep ourselves safe from it. But when we come to the Lord's table and experience with all of our senses that God is still working, even though everything else would speak to the contrary, that he wins through death, then we're fortified to continue to live faithfully, to stand firm as believers in the Lord. We belong to Jesus. So we must come again and again and again to be reminded who we are so that we can press on, strain towards the goal. Hold true to who you are when your conscience assails you, Paul says. He says next, to stand firm. Stand firm when all the things in this world tempt you to quit the race or to, to run a different race. How do we do that? The first thing he says is God has given you godly examples. Join in imitating us and those who walk according to our example. And when he says us here, remember at the beginning of the letter, it says it's addressed from Paul and Timothy. And they give us the example, don't they? Had Paul the elder and Timothy the younger. And Timothy was following Paul's example. He's being discipled in the faith, shown how to live like you belong to Jesus. More than that, you see that word examples there. The original there is, is typos or type. And maybe you know that in theology we talk about types of Christ, things or events in Scripture that point us forward to Jesus. So David defeated the giant. He, he wins the victory we could never win, and his victory becomes ours, a type of Christ. What he's saying here is that these godly examples that God has given us 
are little types, little Christs, not the true Christ, but other people who belong to Christ, walking the same path that you're walking and showing you how to live faithfully, even when everything else would try to, to pull you away from it. I know your pastor is passionate about discipleship, so I don't need to say much more here, but can I just encourage those of you who have walked with the Lord Jesus for many, many years and tell you that for, for people my age and younger, there is almost nothing more encouraging in life than to sit across the table from someone who's walked with Jesus for a lifetime and to share some, some struggle or temptation or frustration and to receive that, that knowing look a nod of affirmation, and then a testimony that God's faithful. He'll bring you through it. There's almost nothing more comforting than to see that. I don't remember much of the advice I've gotten from people when that's happened to me, but I do remember the fact that they're still walking with Jesus. They're still living like they belong to Jesus, and that's enough to keep me going as well. Let me encourage the rest of us to seek those people out, dignify them, by giving the opportunity to speak in your life in that way. We need these examples, Paul says, because there are many who walk opposed to this example. He says, I tell you, even with tears, that there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's curious the way that he explains it. He says their God is their belly. So you think about it like this. If, if, if the previous passage... Uh, talked about the paradigm of I am what I do, these people are essentially um, functioning out of the paradigm of I am what I feel. I am what I feel, and so I do what feels good. Their whole identity is wrapped up in doing that which is going to make them feel good. And so their God is their belly. They're totally controlled only by their desires. And, you know, I think it's important for us as Christians to realize that these people, our culture, you know, this idea is rampant in our culture right now, isn't it? That people want to be accepted for who they truly are, their true identity, and so they define their whole identity by their desires. And so a person sees their primary identity as someone who is, is same-sex attracted or otherwise. And what they're doing is they're borrowing a biblical value, but because they don't have the gospel to apply it in the right way, they can, they, can never, they can never live as they were designed to live. Instead, they live on a path that leads to destruction, Paul tells us. And when we see them, not as people who are just doing the wrong things that are opposed to Scripture, but as people who, who deeply want to be affirmed for who they are, just as we are in Christ, then we, like Paul, can look at these people not with judgment and condemnation, but with tears and compassion this brother or sister wants so deeply to be affirmed, and the only way they know how to do that is to follow their belly and their, their most primal desires. And they can have so much more in Jesus Christ if only they knew Jesus. One author says it helpfully this way. She says, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's the hope we have as Christians, that we can share with the world. You can belong to Jesus and not have to be controlled by the destructive desires of your flesh. Christians aren't exempt from this, are we? 
we, we still tend to revert back to the desires of our flesh, whether it be workaholism, alcoholism, pornography, same-sex attraction, eating disorders. There are any number of things that, that plague us as Christians that our desires take us away from following Jesus. And so what hope do we have to follow the true path of joy in the midst of that? And that's what Paul tells us next. He says, you want to be free of the desires of this world, then you must live as if you belong to another world. Because you do. So we are citizens of heaven. This would have immediately made sense with the Philippian church. In that day and age, as Rome was expanding its empire, it would, it would conquer these little cities, and Philippi was a strategic one, and so they would conquer it, and then they would assimilate everything about that city to the ethos of Rome. The dress, the culture, it was governed by Rome. And so one author says that it was, a, it was literally a Rome away from Rome. People were living as if they belonged to that kingdom, but they were living in a different place. And that's the mentality that we have as Christians. This is not our permanent home. Our permanent home is in heaven. And so we live according to that rule, according to those desires. And until we get there, we have this hope. We stand firm now, awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, he says, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. The reason that you don't have to live subject to your desires, the sinful desires that, that always try to pull you back, is because Jesus himself is transforming you. And it says that he's doing so by the same power that enabled him to subject all things to himself, including death. And that's the hope that we can have victory in this life. Because when we go to, to heaven, we will be freed of those things once and for all. And while we'll never be totally free of them here, we can achieve some victory. And the resurrection is proof of that. It's that inbreaking of the power of God into our present reality and freeing us from those desires that might otherwise rule us. Jesus is saying, you belong to me and one day I will come again and make you new. Until then, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord, waiting for the day when he comes and frees you from this, frees you from your desires. At the end of those 1924 Olympic Games, Little was interviewed, and this is how he reflected on his experience. He says, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each, of, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. The reality of belonging to Jesus is that that prize that we are striving for as we live on this earth is already secure. It's as secure as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And so, looking forward to that prize for which we strive, we strive to live lives that are worthy of receiving it when we get it. When Jesus takes us home, until then, we hold true to who we are in Christ so that we can stand firm when temptation comes. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.